0: Support for Boston Public Radio comes from Brown University pre-college programs, where high school students can prepare for college success, experience college life, and make new friends from around the world. More than 300 courses are available. Precollege.brown.edu. I'm Marjorie Yegan. You're listening to Hour number two of Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. Hello again, Jim.
1: Hey, Marjorie. I don't know if you heard Henry say Wimbledon starts today. You didn't happen to watch uh, the Arthur Ashe special last night. Documentary? No, but I on... heard it was great. It is really fabulous. Yeah, I've got to watch it. To... It starts with him playing Jimmy Connors in 1975 at Wimbledon, which he won. I mean, it's just, it is... Really a powerful, uh, a powerful piece. Joining us now on Zoom is food policy writer Corby Comer. Corby is the executive director of the Food and Society Policy Program at the Aspen Institute, senior editor at The Atlantic, and senior lecturer at the Tufts Friedman School of Nutrition, Science, and Policy. Good afternoon, Corby Comer. Exactly. Oh, Let me try hear? that again. Good afternoon, <laughs> Corby Comer. Think we debuted me? Kind of- there well, you, go. there you go. You? Great to see you, Corby.
0: So. Corby Kummer, um, let's start with this story. You know, we've talked a lot about the restaurants really struggling during the pandemic, um, but apparently this one in Chinatown, the, the Gourmet Dumpling House, is very popular, great. and it's closing because the rent's going up?
2: Well, you say that like that's unusual. That's a very common reason for restaurants to close, and shops. They lose their lease, the rent goes up. It's awful that a beautiful source of soup dumplings, which are a worldwide craze, and we all need soup dumplings, and thank goodness the Cambridge original location is still open, and there are other places like Taiwan Cafe and Dumpling Cafe will still be available to get your fix of soup dumplings, but restaurant closings traditionally have been war with landlords. Think about Eastern Standard and Island Creek Oyster House in a two-year, at least, Um, face-off with the owners of the Commonwealth Hotel, and that ended because of lease problems. So it's sad, and it's common.
1: You know, we're going to have Mayor Wu with us on Thursday, and I want to talk to – I don't know what statutory power they have or just bully pulpit, but it seems to me this is a situation where a – particularly after two years of COVID torture – for virtually all these restaurants, and Chinatown took it even harder. You remember the beginning of the pandemic when nobody was going to Chinatown, and good for former Mayor Marty Walsh went to lunch there one day to basically said everybody's safe. But it, it's almost like sadistic on the part of these landlords, particularly after what uh, they've gone they've gone through. By the way, it, it, Gourmet Dumpling House is just this. Talk about almost out of a movie. For those who haven't been there, beyond the fact that the dumplings and everything else were just unbelievable, and the one in Cambridge is really good, too. But it was like this, as I say, a restaurant in a movie. You couldn't walk straight. You had to walk sideways because the tables were so closely scrunched together. Everybody is in heaven. It's just a fabulous, fabulous place. And while it's only been there 15 years, it feels like it's been there 115, and it is, to me, a huge part of the city, and I think it's a horrible loss to have this thing even lose one of its locations, I think it's a
2: terrible loss. But what you're talking about is the scene in many Chinatown restaurants today. Yeah, uh, you walk in and they're chopping vegetables and gossiping at the back table.
1: <laughs> exactly, <of the>
2: <laughs> and that is so much fun. It's just great. such a sense of community and liveliness.
0: So, the, uh, Corby Cummer, the Washington Post weighed in on how many restaurants actually did close from the pandemic. So, what was the conclusion?
2: What a terrific piece by Tim Carman, a columnist for the Washington Post. He said uh, at the beginning, Tom Colicchio was saying 75 percent of independent restaurants might die. And the National Restaurant Association in 2020 settled on 90,000 restaurants closing. So the news is a little better. But it's still bad one of the there's so many eye popping things a part of this from 2011 to 2019 an average of more than 81,000 food and drink establishments closed every year. So, Tim Carmen started trying to sort out how many extra because of the pandemic, and it was huge. In 2020, he came down because there's all kinds of food establishments in that 90,000 figure um, that we wouldn't consider like independently owned or just plain restaurants where you go in and get served. So Tim Carman said about 72,700 more restaurants and bars than normal closed, probably because of the pandemic. That's a 95% jump over the average annual rate. It was devastating in 2020. It's been stabilizing in 2021. Apparently, there aren't figures more than the first three quarters of 2021. But still, when you think about it, Jim, the landlord disputes of Gourmet Dumpling House, there are so many reasons. And right now, labor shortages, huge food price rises. They're going to keep this. Um, they're they're going to keep being trouble for restaurants.
1: You know, uh, uh, Jamie, or one of our colleagues called Bob Loves this morning, head of the Mass Restaurant Association at C., if they had a decent estimate of the Massachusetts numbers, and he estimated roughly, I think it was 20% of the restaurants closed. And it really doesn't tell the whole picture. I mean, you know this much better than I, Corby. We've had so many restaurateurs on here who are still open, who are hanging by a thread for a whole variety of reasons, including <clears throat> one we discussed last week. I don't know if it was with you or without you, about a lot of people, even though there was all this pent-up Restaurant desire, which we thought would explode, which maybe it did in the short run. Now with the prices of everything through the roof, including restaurateurs having to raise the prices of their food in many cases, it's causing some people who would otherwise go not to go. So it's not just the closures; it's the shaky future restaurants, which are a plenty. No.
2: Yeah, there's a very good quote about this. The figures might not be so bad," said a a restaurant woman spokesman for the Independent Restaurant Coalition. When you get out to Main Street and you talk to the community, things don't look good, even Mm -hmm. if they look good on paper. So that's absolutely right. Right before the show, a friend sent me a newsletter from a restaurant in Florida that said, we want to tell you what Grouper, Pompano, and half and half, half, the price rises over the past year. They were over 100% for each of those items. And they said, we're either going to have creative tapas that have lesser cuts of meat in them or we're just gonna take items off the menu period. There are all kinds of strategies restaurants have to use in order to survive and keep customers uh, coming because they have huge sticker shock, um, supply chain plus just rising prices.
0: So, Corby Cummer, I love this. Kara uh, Baskin, she's on with us t- talking about, she's from The Globe, talking about food and parenting issues lots of times. She talks about uh, this former chef from The Harvest um, opening this plant pub restaurant. And I love when she talks about it because a lot of us are not really that enthused about plant-based food. But according to Mary, uh, a uh, pub food is the gateway drug into plant-based food. I guess we're going to be seduced by the nachos. That's the idea here.
2: <laughs> All right, so I'm going to start to name drop. I'm at the Aspen Ideas Festival, and last night, Daniel Home, the 11 Madison Park guy, Oh, who yes. Was, um, breezed into town. He's a friend, so we spent a lot of time together. The idea of Mary Dumont, the terrific harvest chef, local, like a local highly respected chef, that she's going to go plant forward, um and say this is plant pub is what she's calling it uh in the former boston beer workspace on brookline app yeah the idea is these are the leaders who are going to pave the way for people to consider plant-based food as something they want to have every day and i think that if a talented chef like mary dumont can make it acceptable, not be too challenging to people like Marjorie who aren't (laughs) really drawn to this idea, but they still find that they're satisfied, haven't felt like they've been cheated or that they've had some former hippie force something down their throats along with ideology. If it's just plain good and appealing and it looks like pub food, I think it's great because these are the people who are paving the way for more plant-based food in restaurants.
1: You know, when you think about, you know, plant-based food at a pub, sort of analogous to the Ford F-150 becoming an EV, (laughs) and you say, boy, that'll never, and then they sell out in like three and a half uh, uh, minutes kind of thing, but that's like a tough nut to crack. I mean, I think the conventional wisdom, which I guess is the point of this piece, is that a pub is a place where you wouldn't expect there'd be a lot of openness to that kind of food you know speaking of 11 what is it, 11 madison is that what it's called yeah, 11
2: madison Park. which
1: a lot of people i know we've discussed this with you in the past and i know a lot of people think it's the best oh. restaurant in america didn't he switch to all was that your point didn't he switch to all, all vegan, all vegan all like vegan. a year ago and everybody was shocked right
2: yeah they were shocked and the whole idea for him is i am a thought leader and i want to make this safe for other fine dining restaurants and i want to show the way that you can charge a lot of money and give people a Great dining experience, and Marcia, you might be interested in this little uh, data point. What he was saying is, you know, the mood in the dining room around the time of the main course, and let me just tell you, pre-vegan, the main course came like two and a half hours into the zillion course tasting. I know he's not listening to this segment, I'm glad. And you were really beat. And he said, energy was flagging, but now with a new menu around Midway, the life and the energy in the room don't flag it's completely changed and so there's just this high level of happiness and conversation and buzz that he really sees as a change since the vegan wait, minute, didn't wait we have a minute i'm sorry I,
0: I, this is because people aren't having heavy meters yeah. sitting in their stomach and yeah. wearing them down and exhausting them is that
2: it that's so right, Marjorie. You put it wow. very well. You
1: know, did if I recall, <laughs> I don't know why my memories all come back. Didn't we discuss 11 Madison before? Yeah. And we got in a fight. Well, I got in a fight with you about, what was it, $350, $350 prefix? And I said, I thought it was outrageous no matter how good it was. And your response, I think, was, which just I was reminded because you you're saying wait two and a half hours, is you're buying the experience, not just the food. Wasn't that your point? Wasn't that what you were saying? It's
2: like going to Madison Square Garden or an expensive Broadway show. You right. go once a year. Maybe twice, And it's entertainment. Yeah.
0: Well, you recommended. And and when I was looking for Christmas presents for my kids, that that James Beard House, right, Corby Comer, where you go and you pick the sort of chef you want to be there, you could be, you know, a a sushi chef or a Tex-Mex kind of guy or Italian, whatever it is, and you pick and it's a whole evening. And to say this was like a huge success, you're there for like five hours and it's not cheap. I forget how much it costs, but-
2: No, it's, a- it's not that expensive either. But I have to say, I like what Jim was saying about the restaurants hanging by a thread and mm-hmm. this closing. Right now, if you're gonna spend money, Go to a local place. And a good tip I saw last week was go to the restaurants that were really highly reviewed in the year before the pandemic. See if they're still open because they're not getting a lot of press attention now, but if they've survived the pandemic, they were really hot for a while. Go to them now.
0: <laughs> okay. We're talking to our food writer, uh, Corby Comer, our food policy writer. We'll be right back after a quick break. You're listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH.
1: Welcome back to Boston Public Radio, Jim Browdy and Marjorie, and we're talking to our food guy, Corby Comer.
0: Okay, Corby Comer, as Ann trigger Curlin reports in the Globe, with spongy ripples, umbrella tops, some dainty with slender stems, others thick tan or red yewed, the marvelous little mushroom apparently is making its debut as part of the Mushroom Shop in Somerville.
2: I think this is very brave, of. Um, the 37 uh, year old Swampscott native. That's who right. Foraging for mushrooms for They're years. Big in, in Swampscott. Selling rare fungi to local restaurants. I, I have to be frank, I would much rather be able to sue a restaurant for giving me a bad mushroom than go to a <laughs> That's store. That's a great and- approach. <laughs> but because I have so many friends who are mushroom fanatics. They will sign up and come to Colorado for a Telluride mushroom tour or um, (laughs) I have a a friend in Washington who leads instruction on how to grow them at home. And you seed these little logs with the fungi that you get through the mail. And, And now you, everyone here can go to Somerville, 433 Medford Street, get instructions on how to cultivate your own mushrooms jars and bottles of craft soy sauce, honey and fermented vegetables, Um, I think it sounds like a fascinating shop, and are you willing to take your chances? Well,
0: well, I guess, why now? I mean, the owner of this store says that mushrooms have a certain mystique about them, something fascinating about them that captures your attention. I mean, I I haven't followed the the rise and fall of of mushrooms in the general consciousness. I have.
1: We're in a period of rise.
0: It's huge. Yeah, so what is the... Well, exactly. What is this about?
2: You know, they're everywhere. They're everywhere. They're everywhere under our feet. We're finally catching up to the rest of the world because... Mm -hmm. In Europe and many parts of Asia, a lovely outing is going on a hike and looking for mushrooms. It's incredibly common. You know, it's instead of going for just a picnic, you say, let's go mushroom hunting, depending on the season. Here, you know, there have been mushroom tours in Central Park. So maybe really? they should start. Absolutely. There should be mushroom hunting tours in Franklin Park. Now, in, in, in Central Park, I'm not sure it's even legal to pluck them. And then there's... The pollution that's coming from it, but going with somebody who can tell you here are the main characteristics of this shape. I once did a piece. I spent a week mushroom hunting years ago um, with uh, mushroom guys who turned up in Michael Pollan's "How to Change Your Mind" about magic mushrooms. But uh, <laughs> it's a real, it's a real cult, and it's fun, and you learn how to do something. And certain classes of mushrooms, like porcini or cep, C E P E S, are usually like not poisonous you don't have a way of um, that's good you don't have a way of poisoning yourself if you learn certain shape characteristics and how they look um but you do have to worry about uh you do have to worry about washing them and cooking them because you never know what animals have been traipsing over them
1: you know we should have this guy on by the way because one of the things i i have sort of like oysters which took me about 80% of my life till I like them and now I love them I sort of feel I'm growing into a mushroom phase too if I may say (laughs) Jim is in his
0: mushroom phase exactly
1: you know (laughs) I didn't what, know that. What, well, I'm telling you now. I didn't know you had three <laughs> Eton crank radios either until a couple of minutes ago. You know, getting back to this, I, I think you made a mistake, Corby, excellent food writer. You said when you're washing your mushrooms, my understanding, and I could be dead wrong. Maybe I should go to the mushroom shop. By the way, it's on Medford Ave in Somerville, uh, apparently, here. Is are you supposed to just brush mushrooms? You're not supposed to wash them to get the dirt off?
2: Isn't that well, the deal? Well, let me just say the beautiful, fresh porcini, uncooked sliced beautifully thinly, yeah. only brushed beforehand or maybe wiped with a paper towel. Yeah. Salad that I had at a Vermont friend who herself loved mushrooms. There was a visitor from Italy and they were joyously foraging as they did. Yeah. And we all got Giardia very soon that? afterwards. What is that?
1: What is that? It's giardia? also
2: called beaver fever. It's when, animals,
0: fever.
1: It's what? It's
2: when animals have defecated or okay. gone into oh. where okay. the mushrooms next. are. So I'm in favor of washing. Them and-
1: <laughs> can I can I say one more thing about this? I haven't been to the store. And I'm actually going to go. I think it's open on Saturdays. I'm going to go this weekend. Uh, you know what I really uh, like about this? I like single product stores. Now, obviously, I want a, a company to succeed, particularly in the food world. There's this great spice joint on, uh, on uh, Mass Ave in North Cambridge, the name of which, of course, has escaped me. There's this mushroom deal. There's a tea place in Harvard Square. I love single uh, uh, item? Why are you making a face of me?
0: No, oh, I think that's well. Okay, Jim. great.
1: Okay, fine. But in any case, I would check out this place, and we're going to try to get this uh, guy on for those of you. The
2: variety and expertise yes. and the passion of the owners, and they're often independently yeah. owned, are good reasons, Jim, to go to those places and give them your business.
1: You don't like mushrooms, Marjorie? Do you? Or do you? I do like mushrooms. You hate actually. oysters, I a know lot, that. I
0: don't like oysters, but no. lots of people are using mushrooms as a steak meat substitute. Well, there's right? one
1: kind of mushroom. Maybe and-
2: Mary Dumont at her new plant pub. That's exactly. a great idea.
1: There's one of those mushrooms that I read about somewhere. I, I said so. this on the air last week. I forgot to look it up, which really I read in the Globe, I think, or the Times or something a year ago, said it actually tasted like meat when you ate it, and it tasted exactly like meat when you It's amazing, whatever the hell. Wood something or whatever the hell it is. In any case, we're talking to uh, Corby Comer, our food guy.
0: So I guess, Corby Comer that um, – when people do these takeout things, a DoorDash or whatever, sometimes you're ordering from a place and it's really not um, what you think you're getting, like the chicken wings and so forth. What's
2: What's the I story? I was fascinated by this story because I haven't seen anyone cover this nationally. So there's been yeah, this is in the
0: Globe. So yeah, in the
2: Globe a, by Kay Lazar and Anissa yep. Uh from the Kay Globe. Lazar, a great
0: reporter, used to, used to be at the Herald.
1: But... Okay, fine. Aha. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs>
2: Okay, um, cr- credit to former Herald writers, always. Exactly. Uh, there's been a lot of attention to so-called ghost kitchens. It happened before the pandemic in which one restaurant would expand its product line if we're doing pizza and Italian food or wings uh, on its regular menu, it would say, no, we're gonna do all Thai or all Chinese because we can make a lot of money or some extra money by using the same staff, the same real, the same footprint of our kitchen and just send it out. And what they do is they invent the name of a restaurant, they invent the menu and it goes on Grubhub or, or Seamless or these different restaurant uh, ordering sites and you have no idea it's not a bricks and mortar location. And during the pandemic, because nobody could go to restaurants, this started to take off and there started to be many ghost kitchens. A ghost kitchen means, doesn't actually have any tables or chairs or service. It just exists as a central kitchen that makes several different menus, and I think the Commonwealth Kitchen, the fantastic incubator kitchen in um, in Boston, has helped people to start these. So what's the problem that I never thought of? If there's a foodborne illness yeah, outbreak, exactly. how does the health department trace that big oh, yes. or that high food? back to the people who made it, because it's not so easy. Um, you know, you hope that the person who, who sadly got ill will give you the information about where the food came from, but it's so opaque. It's some fabulous concept that Trevor Kolasnik, the guy who was disgraced from Uber, he went into a billion-dollar ghost kitchen business across the country. That's been his business post-Uber. That's been his second act after uber so so they make it like beautifully integrated with software and fabulous marketing but you have no idea it doesn't exist and it's a ghost kitchen so the FDA apparently did a three day meeting earlier this year saying how are we going to regulate these places and how are we going to find and they don't have any answers and they say this fall we're going to have it but this is a story about Chelmsford and Lexington and local health departments trying to cope with it. And it's very controversial because Bob Loz, whom we've already mentioned today from the Massachusetts Restaurant Association said, look, if the restaurant has already been inspected and it's got safe food practices, what difference does it make what kind of food they're making? It does make a difference. If you have allergies, you don't know what other kinds of food they've been making. Uh, And more than that, what was really, really attention getting was, there was a Thai restaurant that was closed by the health inspectors, but they reopened as a virtual operation. And they they didn't have to get an inspection sticker, oh apparently. Oh, my gosh.
1: Can I read you this one paragraph? I love this but the piece in The Globe. In Leominster, the health director recently made a similar discovery. After some online sleuthing, he learned that a local pizza restaurant, part of a national chain, had been preparing food for a virtual Chinese restaurant while a Brazilian steakhouse was cooking up concoctions for virtual operation specializing in macaroni and cheese dishes. <laughs> you say to yourself if you're so good at macaroni and cheese and Chinese food, why don't you open up a Chinese restaurant and sell macaroni and cheese, doesn't it? Well, don't you?
2: It's so much cheaper to do a virtual I know, operation. I, know, I know, I know, I know. What makes me wonder is if you're operating a national branch, why isn't that national branch coming down on you and saying, "No moonlighting on our premises yes. and so all these places are able to open different uh, serve different menus on the side i don't know
1: well someday we'll answer those questions corby comer it's nice to see you thank you very thank much you, corby. see you at the mushroom store bye <laughs> i'm going to the place this week i really <laughs> no, am going i'm going sure this weekend. You are. i'm sure you okay. are okay shroom
0: not. weekend coming up for jim i am i been speaking with food policy writer corby comer he's executive director of the food and society policy program at the Aspen Institute, a senior editor at The Atlantic, and a senior lecturer at the Tufts Friedman School of Nutrition Science and Policy. Coming up, we speak with two members of the Cape Cod Theatre Project, a really fascinating project about kind of incubating theatre. That's next on 89.7 GBH, Boston Public Radio.